The talk tonight is on karma and the end of karma. The Dalai Lama was once asked uh, by someone, if you were teaching Westerners, would it be uh, more important to teach them about emptiness or about karma? And he said that as important as emptiness is in the Buddhist teachings, it would be more important to teach Westerners about karma. So I thought we shouldn't have a three-month course go by without some discussion of this topic, which is very central to the Buddha's teachings. The word has entered our Western vocabulary, but it's not very well understood. Most Westerners have a, let's say, difficult relationship with karma when they first encounter it. And in the talk this evening, I'd kind of like to suggest to you that karma is something that you can really cozy up to. And in fact, it may become one of your best friends on the path. But we don't really need to hold it at an arm's length as we understand it properly. The other thing I have to say as a preface is that I cannot verify from my direct experience the range of the Buddha's teachings on this topic, and most people I know are in the same position. So in the talk tonight, I'm not going to tell you so much what I know personally about karma as what the Buddha said about it, because he said that he could see these things from his direct experience. So I just want to share with you his teachings on karma, and I am also not trying to get you to believe, although I think it would be greatly to your benefit. <laughs> but I just, want, I just want you to know what the Buddha said and let you find your own relationship to these teachings. So in the uh, talk this evening, I'm going to touch on four main points in relation to karma. That is the meaning of the word, the way uh, results are generated, the relationship between karma and not-self, and the end of karma. So what is karma? This is the Sanskrit expression of the word. In Pali, it's known as kamma, K-A-M-M-A. So I might use either of those. And it's another example of a simple Indian word that the Buddha took and gave a special meaning to. So in these Indian languages, karma or kama simply means action, nothing more. In the time of the Buddha, all the different philosophical schools that were around northern India had something important to say about action. Either it mattered or it didn't matter, there would be consequences or there wouldn't be consequences, it's predetermined or it's freely chosen. There were all these different views running around, and the Buddha contributed a unique and original perspective on the term. Because the way he defined it, he said that it means action with volition. Or you could say intention. This is the term chetna that we introduced as a meditation subject toward the end of the instructions a few weeks ago. This is a quote from the Anguttara Nikaya. Volition, O bhikkhus, is what I call action. For through volition, one performs the action. So we could talk about different synonyms for this word volition. Intention, motivation, urge, will, impulse. So you get the feeling, I hope, that it's the kind of energy from the mind 
that drives the action of thought or speech or body. This is really the key. And in the Buddha's explanation, what makes an action wholesome or unwholesome is the wholesome or unwholesome quality of the volition from which it comes. So actions that are rooted in uh, greed, aversion, and confusion, which are called the roots of the unwholesome, express in unwholesome actions. And actions that are rooted in their opposites, generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, which are called the roots of the wholesome, express themselves through wholesome actions. So it's not the action per se that is to be judged wholesome or unwholesome, it's the volition from which it comes. So for example, if a, if a baby moves in their uh, sleep and knocks over a candle and the candle burns the house down, the baby has no unwholesome volition in that, so there's no karmic consequence even though you wouldn't really like to have your house burned down. The baby did nothing wrong. You could take a, uh, an action like cutting somebody with a knife and ask, is that wholesome or unwholesome? If it's done by a surgeon as an act of compassion, it can be very wholesome. If it's done by a robber out of uh, hatred, then it's very unwholesome. So it's not the act per se, but the intention behind it that causes it to be seen as wholesome or unwholesome. One interesting point in this very definition of action with volition, which is most of the action that we do, there's a moral weight to the action that's intrinsic to its volition. This is an important point that we'll come back to later and a departure from the other schools in India at the time. Action can take place in three spheres, body, speech, and mind. So in this understanding, thoughts and emotions also have some, can have uh, volitional impulses as their basis. Fortunately, the Buddha was very clear about what kinds of actions have wholesome qualities and what kinds have unwholesome. This aligns very much with the talk that Annie gave last week on sila. To put it in a slightly different context, he identified 10 actions as unwholesome. And I'll just run through them briefly because Annie talked about most of them and the others are fairly clear. Three actions of body are considered unwholesome. These are uh, <coughs> killing, taking what is not given, and sexual misconduct. Four actions of speech are considered unwholesome. Lying, harsh speech, malicious speech about another person, and idle chatter or gossip. And three actions of mind are considered unwholesome. Covetousness, ill will, and wrong view. This is very interesting. The Buddha said that misunderstanding the nature of reality gives us um, an unwholesome basis from which to relate to life. So misunderstanding or wrong view is a mental unwholesome action. The, wholesome, the 10 wholesome actions are to refrain from the 10 unwholesome. So this gives us very clear guidelines for our conduct in daily life, just as, as Annie described in her talk. And I think especially because in a, another week we'll be heading back into daily life, 
This is a very important time to turn our reflections to action in the world and what will conduce to our welfare and what will not conduce to our welfare. The Buddha described one who takes great care with their actions as enjoying what he called the bliss of blamelessness. That is, when one reviews one's conduct in the world, if it has been aligned with the precepts and with the ten wholesome actions, one enjoys a certain kind of uh, freedom from regret and freedom from remorse that he called the bliss of blamelessness. And I've always been interested to what degree can this uh, quality, this impeccability of conduct be developed. So I was very interested to read the account of an interview with the Dalai Lama. It took place a few years ago. The person conducting the interview was Oprah Winfrey. And I, you know, I have to say, it was, I think it was published in her magazine, O. Oh, I really appreciate Oprah for bringing really wholesome teachings about well-being and healing and spirituality to a very, very wide audience. I don't know anybody in the world who hits such a wide audience with such good teachings as she does. So I very much bow in her general direction. And this is an account of the interview that she held with, uh, with the Dalai Lama. Oprah started by asking the Dalai Lama, have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? The Dalai Lama replied, small incidents like accidentally killing an insect. Killing an insect, Oprah said. <laughs> an insect, hmm, okay. The Dalai Lama continued, my attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable. <laughs> not very peaceful. Bed bugs also. And that's it? Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly. But major mistakes, it seems, no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated, mulling over the idea. She fell silent and looked out the window. There was awe in her voice when she finally continued. You have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a good life. That's a great life, to have no regrets. The Dalai Lama continued. Regarding service to Tibet, service to Buddhism, service to humanity, I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. So, all that stands between us and the Dalai Lama is 16 lifetimes of practice. So, we're getting started. So this is the potential in the bliss of blamelessness, not to have any regrets in one's life. So this is the basic meaning of karma, looking closely at our actions and seeing the intentions that they spring from. Then the other part of the teaching is that the kinds of actions we do lead to certain results in our life. 
And the basic understanding is that when we act from a wholesome intention, then that brings wholesome results back into our life. When we act from an unwholesome intention, that brings unwholesome results back into our life or unhappiness. This is from the Dhammapada, famous uh, quotation near the beginning. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with an impure mind, and sorrow will follow you like the wheel of the cart follows the oxen. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. This is the general statement of the teaching on karma. Speak with a pure mind and happiness results, or act with an impure mind and unhappiness results. And this is true whether our aim is simple human happiness, which is cultivated by qualities like generosity, loving kindness, and compassion, or whether our aim is the highest happiness, which is developed by the factors of the Eightfold Path. In either case, these are our karmic directions. This basic sense is understood, is gaining understanding in our wider culture. A few years ago, I was teaching a class at uh, Juvenile Hall in San Mateo in California to a group of teenagers. These were young people under the age of 18 who were in jail awaiting trial on charges like um, assault, grand theft, uh, murder. And as part of the class, I felt it was important to teach them about karma because it's so, so important to our welfare. And I started to present the topic as the study of how we can find happiness. And so I said, do you all have some, some feel for this teaching on karma? And one of the young men said, oh, you mean what goes around comes around? And I said, yeah, that's it. So he had it. He already had that concept. There wasn't a lot more I needed to say, and there wasn't a lot of resistance to the basic idea of it. In the Tibetan system, the phrases for the Brahma-viharas are expressed partially in terms of karma. I'll just read the phrases for metta and compassion in what are called the four immeasurables in the Tibetan tradition. May all beings have happiness, and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. That's the metta phrase, the compassion phrase. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. So here the metta and compassion wishes have really been joined with this teaching on, on karma to illustrate how they arise. What's so interesting to me about this teaching is that it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. It doesn't matter if you know the teaching or not. It doesn't matter if your religion believes in it or not. And it doesn't matter if your culture believes in it or not. These teachings are a universal law that happen whether we wish them to happen or know of their happening or not. They happen anyway. So I think a lot of the growth in the path is coming to have confidence in this teaching, coming to trust somewhat in this law. Do we trust that 
impeccable conduct really leads to happiness. There's a beautiful story sort of along these lines about one of the um, most remarkable monks in our tradition that I've had a chance to meet. It's a Cambodian monk named Mahagosananda. Mahagosananda became the patriarch of uh, Cambodian Buddhism um, after the time of the Khmer Rouge. And maybe the only reason that he survived the Khmer Rouge is that he was practicing outside of Cambodia while they were in power. And something like 16 of his immediate family were killed in Cambodia while the Khmer Rouge were in power. But he was practicing in Thailand at the time and escaped that regime and the mass killings that happened of the, of the monks. So around 1980, the Khmer Rouge were starting to be displaced from, from power, but there were many uh, refugees still on the border with Thailand. Mahagosananda uh, began to live in the refugee camps, the way to try to heal the, the country and to make a way for people to go back into the country. And while he was there, he taught, and he was well-loved and well-respected. He was in a simple hut in a refugee camp and on Sunday mornings when he would teach hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people would come and uh, gather outside his hut for the teaching. One of his main uh, teaching devices was to have people chant in Pali another of the verses from early in the Dhammapada, which says something like, hatred never ceases through hatred. Hatred only ceases through love. This is the ancient and eternal law. Can you imagine having the nerve to teach this to people whose families had been killed, whose fellow citizens had been killed mercilessly by the government that was in charge? And many of the supporters of that government were still alive and in local positions of influence in Cambodian villages and towns. And Mahagosananda wanted to unify the country. How could he heal? His message was, we can only heal through love. That's trust in karma. That's trust in the impeccability of conduct and speech. So footnote to this story. There were Khmer Rouge um, people, affiliated people, still in the refugee camp, and they didn't like the reconciliation work that Mahagosananda was trying to carry out. So they threatened his life. And word of this came to some of the uh, Westerners in the, in the camp, and they went up to Mahagosananda and said, it's not safe for you here anymore. We're going to uh, give you money to take a plane to Paris where you can live in exile and your, your life will be safe. Well, Mahagosananda had been teaching this uh, prayer from the Dhammapada and the reconciliation through love through pamphlets. He had printed up many, many pamphlets that had the Pali phrases and that the Cambodians would chant along with him on the Sunday morning teachings. And they were asking him basically to, to give all of that up. So Mahagosananda said, okay, you give me the money, I'll go to Bangkok and, and, get, and, uh, and do as you say. So they gave him the money, you know, several hundred dollars to 
fly to Paris to safety. He went to Bangkok, printed up thousands more of the pamphlets, <laughs> came back to the refugee camp and handed them out to even more people and continued his teaching. Hatred never ceases through hatred. Hatred only ceases through love. That was his trust in the Dhamma. So our equanimity practice, which we introduced uh, this week, is built on this understanding that our happiness or unhappiness comes from our past actions, their wholesome or unwholesome qualities. And the whole phrase, the traditional phrase, goes like this. All beings are the heirs to their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend on their past actions more than on my wishes for them. The Buddha actually stated this even more strongly in the text. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya. Beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. Here you understand actions, the word he was using is kama. Beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama. Their actions are the womb from which they are born. Their actions are their friend, their refuge. Whatever acts they perform, for good or bad, of that they will be the heirs. Now, I've found that Westerners often have a strong resistance to this idea. So I want to explain a little about um, the sense of it and why sometimes I think there's a misunderstanding. First, I think it, for Americans at least, it conflicts with some notion we have about democracy. Those of you f outside of America may not know that the beginning of our, of our Declaration of Independence says, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all persons are created equal. So there's something about this notion of uh, fundamental equality that seems to people to conflict with the teaching of karma, as though out of this fundamental equality, everyone should be equally happy. And so from this point of view, the teaching on karma can seem um, cold, uncaring, or even cruel. But I think one of the misunderstandings is the teaching on karma doesn't mean that we think beings deserve to suffer. That's not part of it. There's no deserving anywhere. And I'm, I'm very convinced that if the Buddha could have reached in to everybody's heart and plucked out the seed of suffering, he would have done that instantly. I don't think there's any wish on the Buddha's part or on any serious practitioner's part that people deserve to suffer. Think about the story of Angulimala. He had killed 999 people and strung their fingers in a bracelet around his neck. And he, he was in the forest and tried to kill the Buddha as his 1,000th victim. Did the Buddha think that he deserved to suffer? No. He taught Angulimala the Dharma. He helped him to practice and understand. Angulimala soon became enlightened and his suffering was ended. This is the work of, of compassion. But the fact is that the teaching of karma is just a law in the Buddha's view. Expecting to do an unwholesome action and not have a result of suffering would be like expecting the law of gravity to be suspended. It would be like expecting an apple to be plucked from a tree and not fall to the ground. 
There's just no way to arrest the law of gravity. There's no way to arrest the law of karma. But that doesn't mean there's a deserving in it. There's not a punishing attitude in the law of karma. Sometimes we also may think that this is an excuse for not caring. You know, we look at someone who's suffering and we go through this rationale. Oh, they're suffering. That must be their karma. Therefore, it's their fault. So it's not my problem. And we could think it could be used as an excuse for not taking action or not caring. Again, that's not the way it's meant. This is called indifference, and it's the near enemy of equanimity. The Dharma is about unfolding compassion. So when we see somebody suffering, it doesn't matter what the cause is. It doesn't matter whether the cause is an external cause, a physical cause, a mental cause, a karmic cause. Compassion wants to alleviate suffering. Of course, to alleviate effectively, we have to understand the cause, but it does not come with a judgment that says, you should be suffering, therefore I'm not going to intervene or help. That's again a misunderstanding. If in doing the equanimity meditation, you find this tendency coming to mind, oh, that person's suffering is from their own karma, therefore it's not my problem, I don't care, then that equanimity needs to be uh, suffused more with metta and compassion. It's an unripe equanimity, an incomplete equanimity that's, that's slid to its near enemy. So in this way, the Brahma-viharas help to balance one another out. Compassion has to go along with equanimity. The fruits of action, or the results of action, you might say, can be seen in uh, at least six different ways. So I want to run through some of those. First way is, before we do an action, we get a feeling for its tone. So if we're thinking of doing something lovely, beautiful, coming out of metta or generosity, before we do it, as we're considering doing it, we feel good. So even before we do the act, it brings an uplift to us. Similarly, if we're thinking about doing something unskillful, take a look inside. As we get more sensitive, something feels kind of creepy about it. If you tune into it, there's a ugh quality. Uh, not long ago, I work on a lot of committees and uh, a board at Spirit Rock, teacher groups, and so forth. And we have lots of discussions and debates about how to run the center. And we were having a discussion on something, and I'd put out some viewpoint or other. And uh, somebody was taking the opposite viewpoint and replied in an email to me that I found uh, not only disagreeing with me, but uh, disrespectful. You know, so I don't mind if people disagree with me, but when it's disrespectful, then I kind of get uh, stirred up about it. And I noticed my first impulse, very first impulse was sort of happily, I'll forward this email to the other members of the committee. <laughs> so I won't say anything against the person, but I'll show them you know, the unskillful attitude from this other person who disagrees with my view. <laughs> And I saw that, you know, and I was sitting, sitting with that for a minute. I didn't hit send. And I saw that was the motivation, and I couldn't send it. So I just 
I didn't send it. I can't even remember if I replied to the original email or not, but I very consciously made the decision not to send that because it just didn't feel right. So before we act, we can feel the influence. During the act, we feel the result. When you're being generous with somebody, tune into how it feels. When you're expressing love to somebody, tune into how that feels. It feels great to give. So in the very moment of doing a wholesome act, you feel the wholesome effect of it. Similarly, when we're doing something that is going to hurt somebody else, inside there's some degree of pain that's going along with it. Maybe it's coming out of pain in the first place, and we can feel the pain even as we do it. Something that doesn't feel right, doesn't feel good. Our friend Sylvia Borstein has this nice line. It's helpful to remember. Anyone causing great pain is himself in great pain. And that's helpful to remember as a source of compassion. In the future, after we've done an action and we remember our past actions, we can feel good about that. And that's why in the metta practice, we very often encourage us all to reflect on our good actions as we enter metta for ourselves. Because when we tune into our own goodness, it makes it easier for the metta for ourselves to arise. Or if we've harmed people in the past, often in retreat, those memories will come up clearly and we'll feel that sense of remorse or guilt about those past actions. So that's the third way. A fourth way is that the, the way that we act toward others kind of comes back to us in the way they relate to us. If we relate to other people out of friendship and warmth and affection and generosity, then people like to see us coming. And they kind of open their hearts and their minds to us and they want to receive us. So our actions have created an atmosphere that forms the relationship that we're held in. But if we act to people out of um, anger, frustration, irritation, impatience, and judgment, then people aren't so keen to see us coming. And we may find as we approach people, they, they turn away or close off to us. So again, the results of our actions in relationship get mirrored back in others' responses. The fifth way that our actions um, influence us in the future is in creating habitual states of mind. When we generate wholesome states of mind again and again and again, that becomes the way the mind inclines. If we generate unwholesome states of mind again and again and again, that becomes the way our mind inclines. So take a look at this as you sit on your cushion. You know, one, one question that always interests me when I'm sitting or when I come to physical stillness is, why does my mind move at all? Does it need to? Most of the time, there's not a real need, but it does. So why is it moving? And then where does it go? Where does the mind commonly go when it moves? What does it dwell on? And often we'll see it's drawn to those places where we've invested in the past, where we've invested in uh, people or outcomes or situations or money or pleasures or pains. It will go where we've put our volitional energy. This is from the Buddha. 
Bhikkhus, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of sense desire, ill will, or cruelty, then their mind will incline to thoughts of sense desire, ill will, or cruelty. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of renunciation, kindness, and compassion, then their mind will incline to thoughts of renunciation, kindness, and compassion. So as we act, we are wearing a groove in the mind that then the mind will settle into in the future. This is the fifth kind of outcome in the future from present actions. The sixth is the one that people question. It seems from what the Buddha said that our actions have results in the future in mysterious ways that we really cannot see or understand. And these are the ways that we can't verify from our individual insight or experience some of the complicated and intricate workings of karma. How is it that a life of virtue brings happiness? I don't know all the details of it. We can see some of the ways in those first five. But how does that work completely? I don't know. But the Buddha said that they do come back in ways that we normally can't foresee or tell in complicated and mysterious ways. So it's kind of interesting when you tune into this level of the teaching of karma, you understand that what the, what the Buddha was painting is a picture of the universe in which morality is woven into the very fabric of the nature of beings. That is, wholesome actions bring wholesome results. That is essentially a moral statement. Immoral conduct brings unhappy results. That's a moral statement. This was something that really amazed me when I started to tune into it and reflect on it. Morality is an essential part of the universe of sentient beings. It's inescapable. Now to me, this became the heartful view. I wouldn't want to live in a universe that was amoral. And finding that I live in a universe of which morality is an, is an integral part, to me is a much more heartful way to approach life. And it makes me care more about my conduct and the underlying intention. So for me, this understanding warms up the universe. It's not a cold or immoral or heartless view at all. It brings a great sense of heart to the very fabric of this world that we live in. But the Buddha said, in many ways, we can't figure out the details of how karma unfolds in these subtle, these subtle ways. In fact, he described it as one of the four imponderables. As the Buddha said, there are four things that if you speculate about them, you will go mad and experience vexation. <laughs> I'm not sure which comes first, the going mad or experiencing vexation, but nonetheless, it's not a good outcome. So one of the four is the workings of karma, meaning the details of how karmic results happen. We can't see. The other three, in case you're curious, are the range of mind of a Buddha, what a Buddha could know or not, the beginning of things, 
the beginning of the universe, and the power of a concentrated mind. So these are the other things that you just can't figure out, so you don't need to think about. But think about the way that karma is sometimes held in our culture and probably in others. Have you ever heard this? I have heard this. Someone gets sick and a friend, questionably, will say to them, oh, you're sick, it must be your karma. How do you think that makes the sick person feel? Usually pretty awful. To me, the really interesting thing is there is no way that that friend can know whether that's true or not. That's only a belief, a belief with no real evidence and no foundation in these teachings. Only somebody like a Buddha could see that kind of connection. You and I cannot see that. So for us to speculate on the causes of a friend's illness is really inappropriate. It's way off base. The Buddha was asked one time if everything that happened to one in the, on the level of pleasant or unpleasant feeling came from past karma, and he did not say yes. This is an important thing to remember. He was invited to make this statement, and he did not agree with it. And he named other causes that he said all the world recognizes as being influential factors. He mentioned illness diet, climate, and assault as other factors that lead to pleasant or unpleasant feelings for people. So just remember, karma is one kind of cause that works in this world that we live in. It is not the only cause. There are physical causes. There are chemical causes. There are biological causes, including genetics. There are dietary and meteorological causes. There are many other things responsible for pleasant or unpleasant feeling. So we can go in one direction. We can say, if there's an, a wholesome act now, it will bring wholesome results. If there's an unwholesome act now, it will bring unwholesome results. We can go from the present and say, there will be some future consequence. But there is no way that any of us can go from the present and say, this was the past cause of that. This outcome that someone is living, whether it's their illness, you know, their, their general health, their sense of mental well-being, their living situation, anything, there is no way an accident that befalls them, an assault that befalls them, there is no way that we can say that was the result of karma, and it's not in the Buddha's teachings. So this is something I think often catches Westerners, and I just wanted to be very clear that is not in the teachings. Everything that happens is as a result of karma. But when somebody says in the West, I don't believe in karma, it usually means this sixth kind, this mysterious way that it unfolds in the future. Because we can understand the other five ways that present actions lead to wholesome or unwholesome results. They're quite, they're quite verifiable. So in, the, in terms of this sixth uh, way, this mysterious way that it can unfold in the future, it took me quite a few years of kind of hanging out with the concept and observing my life and the lives of people I knew 
to get some confidence in this teaching. So, you know, don't expect that you have to believe in it overnight or you should believe in it overnight. I'd say just maintain an open attitude, you know, to the possibility it may be true and then see. Or, you know, see over the years how it, how it feels to you, how your intuition relates to it. But also I'd ask you not to believe in its opposite, that there is no way that a wholesome act results in wholesome um, circumstances in the future. Clearly, you and I cannot know that either. And so to discount this teaching would also be an act of blindness. So I just ask you to hold the possibility, recognizing that none of us knows from direct experience, and then investigate and see. So this also influences the next topic I just want to mention briefly, which is rebirth. For karma to be understood fully, we need to understand it in the light of, of rebirth. Because the actions from this life, according to the Buddha's teachings, will influence our next birth um, after death. Again, the concept of rebirth was alien to me when I started to uh, practice Vipassana. When I heard the teachings on karma and rebirth, I was skeptical at first. So I just, I didn't toss them out. I just kept an open and questioning mind and then let them uh, just settle and uh, reflect over years. So again, there's no rush to have to decide on this question, but just ask you to keep an open mind. So in some of the suttas, the Buddha says uh, very clearly how some of the actions of this life play out in future lives. He said, for example, that one who is generous in this life will experience either in this life or a future life abundance in material things. One who is uh, stingy in this life will experience in this life or some future life a lack of abundance in material things. He said that one who uh, abstains from killing living beings in this life or a future life will enjoy long life. One who abstains from injuring living beings in this life or a future life will enjoy good health. So again, you know, there's the possibility of present actions leading to future results, but trying to interpret it backwards, we can't do. We can't say that someone who has a short life, it's because of some action in the past. We don't know enough to see it that way. Then another question that comes is, um, what, what do we take with us at the time of death? What is important that we carry forward? And this is what the Buddha said. Grain. So, so this is an agricultural society. Grain was a form of wealth back then. Grain, possessions, money, all the things you love, servants, workers, dependents, none of them can you take with you. You must cast them all aside when you die. But whatever kama is made by you, whether by body, speech, or mind, that is your real possession and you must fare according to that comma. 
That comma will follow you, just as the shadow follows its owner. Therefore, do good actions, gather benefit from the future. Goodness is the mainstay of beings in the hereafter. So again, it's not necessary that you believe this, but I think it's important that you know that the Buddha said this. And then you can think about it. Suppose you decide to believe this and lead, want to lead a good life, then there's the great possibility, according to the teachings, that you will experience benefits in a future life. But even if you don't believe in a future life, but you live in this way, you'll experience great benefits in this life. So whether you believe in rebirth or not, it doesn't matter. But the benefits are there for you. Now, another question that comes is, if there's no self, what gets reborn? And this also intersects with the teaching on karma. See, there's a similar question you can pose about karma. If there's no self, what is it that inherits the results of karma? This was posed by a bhikkhu in the Buddha's lifetime. The bhikkhu said, what self then will actions performed by the not-self affect? basically the same question. The Buddha said, you haven't been listening to me. So I want to explain a little bit about how, uh, how this can be understood. First of all, in terms of the self going from one life to another, it's in just the same way as our patterns go from one moment of practice to another. You can say that nothing is the same as you look closely from one moment of experience to another, everything is changing, physical sensations, thoughts, emotions, sounds, and yet there is some continuity in our being. In the same way, there is some continuity from one birth to the next. The factor that continues, or that makes the link, that's a better way to say it, is consciousness. It's spoken of as the relinking consciousness. From, one, uh, from a death to the next birth. But there is no essence that is carried in that. So Ajahn Amaro put it this way, the process of going from one life to the next is in fact not very different from the process of going from one moment to the next. In either case, nothing substantial is ongoing, but there is a pattern that continues. Okay, so how do karma and not-self fit together? At first they seem contradictory, but in fact they completely need each other to make sense. We talked before about this analogy of the river. A river is flowing along, there's nothing fixed in it, and yet we can give a name to that river that makes sense. The Connecticut River is a useful designation that's different from the Mississippi River. Similarly, each of us has a mind stream that is constantly changing, but is an individual kind of phenomenon. So each of our mind streams is in constant flux, but has its own, uh, its own way of being. So everything is changing within each mind stream, and yet to know that Joseph's mind stream is different from Carol's mind stream, is different from your mind stream, is a helpful thing. There's an element of truth in that. 
Within the mind stream, what constitutes personality? And I would suggest that it is the flow of thoughts and emotions formed in certain patterns according to how the mind has been inclined, what we frequently think and ponder upon, and how we've shaped ourselves by our actions of speech and body. So the way we've acted in terms of thoughts, emotions, speech, and bodily actions, that comes to make up what we call personality. There's nothing fixed in it, only a changing stream as we move through our different emotions of love, sadness, compassion, fear, joy, and so on. So there's no solid essence within, and yet each of us has a kind of ongoing personality. This pattern of our actions, you could say our karmic actions. And that's all that personality is. There's nothing fixed or essential in the middle of it. But our minds are conditioned to run in, that, in those certain grooves that we know so well. And as you've seen during this retreat, it's not so easy to change those grooves. Those grooves have a certain disposition. The mind tends to run along those tracks. Here's a, another quote from the Buddha about karma. Action makes the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by action, like the chariot wheel by the pin. So we are bound to our karma in the way that it generates our mental habits, as well as some other ways. But the freedom in that is that because nothing is fixed in this flow of our mind stream, everything can be changed. Our habits of thought and feeling and speaking and acting can all change. And Dharma practice is all about changing this. So we start to understand that the Dharma uses the principles of karma to transform our lives. Or another way to say it is that the path itself is a karmic unfolding. As we practice wholesome mind states, that becomes the new grooves of the mind. Our intentional cultivation of qualities like mindfulness and loving-kindness and calm and investigation and energy and equanimity, the cultivation of those factors predisposes the mind to find them again. So in that retraining, we are karmically influencing the direction of our whole mind stream. So it's kind of like this mind stream is kind of like a big river that's flowing along. You know, we have all of our conditioned habits. It's got a lot of momentum. There's a big river flowing that is our mind, our personality, whatever you want to call it, all those karmic formations that we ride. And then we enter Dharma practice, and it becomes this little stream coming in from one side. And at first, its power is weak. A little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of metta. The big stream doesn't shift a lot. But as we continue our Dharma practice, that little tiny stream becomes a bigger and bigger river, and it starts to shift the whole current 
of the main river. And so our minds start to move. The whole mind stream starts to take up this new karmic flavor of the beautiful qualities of mind. This is only possible because there is nothing fixed within our mind stream now. If there was something fixed, essential, and ongoing, how could we alter it? How could we transform it? If ignorance was fixed like that, how could it be undone? If greed was fixed like that, how could it be overcome? But they're not. There's nothing fixed in this big flowing river. That's the truth of anatta. And dharma practice can come in with its beautiful karmic qualities and transform the whole direction of that stream. From suffering to happiness, finally to liberation, to the highest happiness. So, so it's kind of, you know, when you think about our human situation, it's kind of like we're floating in this whole sea of causes and conditions. There are external conditions, the world and all the uncertainty of it. There are internal conditions, which is our karmic predispositions. And as human beings, as sentient beings, we're just floating on this big sea, causes and conditions from the physical world, the chemical world, the biological world, and all our own conditioning. And here we are, this awareness, just tuning into this vast unfolding on karmic levels, physical levels, biological levels, and so forth. How can we steer? What is our rudder amidst all the uncertainty and seeming chaos, sometimes seeming chaos of this world? Where is a, where is a reliable rudder for our life? The teaching on karma is the pointer. The only reliable rudder is intention. Our own volitions turn toward generosity, renunciation, kindness to others, and compassion. That's how we steer our life, and that's how we find a safe harbor. That's the path for human happiness. Let me just say it again. If you want to be happy in a human sense, it's about renunciation, generosity, kindness, and compassion. But as Dharma practitioners, serious Dharma practitioners, most of us have a, f a further goal, which is the highest happiness, awakening, liberation, enlightenment. The Buddha said that for the arahant, there is the fully awakened one, there is the complete end of karma. So this, for some of us, becomes the interesting destination. The ending of karma. The arhat may ex still experience results of past karma, but it does not generate new karma. How does this come about? Again, volition is what shapes us. This is from Nisargadatta Maharaj. Maharaj was an Advaita Vedanta teacher, died, I think, in the early or mid-90s. Very, very awakened being, worked in dialogue a lot. So one questioner came to him 
Maharaj told this questioner, your own will has been the backbone of your destiny. You see that same pointing as karma? Shaping the river. And the questioner replies, well, surely karma interfered. And then Maharaj said, karma shapes the circumstances of your life. The attitudes are your own. Ultimately, your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. Your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. So shaping your character toward human happiness, generosity, loving-kindness, compassion. Shaping your character toward enlightenment, I'll read this statement from the Buddha. What comma is neither dark nor bright, with neither dark nor bright result, which leads to the end of comma? The comma that leads to the end of comma is this noble eightfold path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. If we focus just on the outwardly wholesome actions, generosity, loving kindness, and compassion, we're still involved in doing. We're still involved in activity with an end in sight of some greater happiness. But as we follow the Eightfold Path, we are pursuing factors that lead to this element of Nibbana, the unconditioned, which is the stilling of all formations. And so we approach the stilling of all formations more and more by this quality of non-doing with presence. This stilling where we abandon any self-centered activity. We don't hope for future happy results of abundance, or long life, or better conditions. We want to come to the end of suffering. So resting in this stilling, the refraining from the unwholesome, the development of awareness, the stilling of concentration, this allows the mind to open to that which is beyond conditions, to that which is beyond good and bad in the conventional sense. That is the quality of the unconditioned, which is or Nibbana. It is the Eightfold Path that is the way leading to the end of Kama, the end of volitional action. So let's just sit for a minute together. <laughs> 